Well, you find out now here in chapter 6 that the work goes on. And these people are encouraged to continue the work. And it's quite interesting that there has always been a great deal made of the position of God's people and the condition of God's people. And those two things are quite separate, by the way. One is the condition, that's one thing, and the position, that's something else. Now, these people positionally were in the very place God wanted them to be, back in the land. That was the decree made. God had decreed this, and Cyrus acknowledged that he was doing it at the command of God. So these people are in the position where God wanted them to be. But my friend, their condition is not so good. They're discouraged. And they could walk away from it and do it very easily, and they were about to do that. And now God raises up these prophets to encourage them, you see. It's one thing to talk in such a manner that we get our position and our condition mixed up. It's one thing to say, safe am I, safe am I. Well, yes, if you're in Christ, you're safe, and that's your position. But very candidly, how's your condition? You discouraged saint? You mean that you're anchored in Christ, you have a sure salvation, and you're discouraged? You want to give up? You want to quit? You want to walk away from all of it? Well, my friend, may I say to you, your condition's bad. Your position is good. And that was the state of these folk here. Now, the very interesting thing is, God's with his people. His will's going to be done. And we find here that something was discovered. The enemy, really, this was a case of his foot getting in his mouth. He should have kept quiet. Because here's what happened. Chapter 6 now. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. They went out and dug up the old archives that were covered with dust way back down in the basement somewhere. And that was found at Acmetha in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll. And therein was a record thus written in the first year of Cyrus, the king, the same Cyrus, the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices. Let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof, and so on, and so on. And we find here, also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took forth. And they found it all there, you see. And all of this was now found by Darius. In other words, he never would have known about this if the enemy hadn't mentioned it. And the enemy made a real blunder here for the very simple reason he didn't believe there was a decree like that. Now will you notice, verse 6, Now therefore... Tatnai, governor beyond the river, Shether, Bosnai, and your companions, the Aphrasakites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Listen, this is what Darius now says. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree that ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they may be not hindered. Now, this man that was governor, he had a political job over there, and he thought that by virtue of all of that and the report he'd made, that he could stop the building of this temple in Jerusalem. Now, when the decree of Cyrus was located, why, this king feels like, well, it's the law of the Medes and Persians. It can't be altered or changed. And so he immediately sends word, says, Now, look, I not only don't want you to hinder that work, but the taxes that you gather over there, 
on that side of the river, you keep it over there to help these folk in rebuilding the temple. May I say to you that God does make the wrath of man to praise him. And this was a case of it. And we are told that they were to be given young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offering of the God of heaven. And you notice again the reference, he's called the God of heaven. He's now returned back to his place. Wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. In other words, you're to help them now and not hinder the work at all. And what a decree this was. Fact of the matter is, there was a very severe penalty on anyone now who would attempt to hinder the work and who did not help them in all that they were to do. Now we're told here in verse 14, "...and the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo." And I wish right now I could turn to those two prophets. They are marvelous. We call them minor prophets. Well, they were batting in the major leagues, even if you call them minor prophets. And we're told they built it and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now we're told this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year, the reign of Darius. And the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. Now, who's the rest of the captivity? Those are the ten tribes that a great many people today have lost. They didn't get lost. They're not lost. Verse 17, And they offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering, for whom? For all Israel. Two tribes? Judah? No. Twelve tribes, my friend. For all Israel. Twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, don't tell me today that ten of them got lost and they've ended up yonder in Great Britain and a few of them came over on the Mayflower to this country. That's just simply not true. The record here is very clear that at this time they were not lost. And if they are lost, then all twelve are lost because they're together here. And we'll see that again a little later. Now we're told that they kept the Passover. And what is that Passover? That speaks of the death of Christ. Christ, our Passover, is offered for us. And they gathered around this great Passover feast, which means they're gathering around the person of Jesus Christ, and it's according to the Word of God. Now we've come to the second major division of the little book of Ezra. We had in the first six chapters the return from Babylon that was led by Zerubbabel. And about 50,000 returned at that time. They had gone into Babylonian captivity because they had continually gone into idolatry, and God gave them the gold cure down in Babylon. And also the land had not observed its Sabbaths. That is, every seven years the land was to lie fallow. And they were disobeying the Mosaic law. They didn't think probably it was too important. They thought they were getting by with it. That went on for 490 years. Now God says, I'm going to put you out of the land for 70 years that the land might catch up and observe its Sabbaths. And he did put them out that long. And they now have returned. It was very discouraging in many ways, as we've already seen. And it certainly was not any encouragement to the others that had not come back to return. But now we have another great wave of revival among the people who had been captives who were still living in Babylon. And now we have a group that's led by Ezra. Up to this point, Ezra, though the writer of this book, has not figured in its history at all. But now we have in chapters 7 and 8 the return under Ezra. And then we have in chapters 9 and 10 the Reformation under Ezra. You see, revival, as it was experienced by these people, led to Reformation, and that's always true. We'll see that 
in Nehemiah when we get there later on. Now we have here, as we've had before, the two companion books that we're not looking at now, and those were the prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah. Now will you note, as we come to this chapter, now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now I'm not going to take time to talk about Artaxerxes, but he's the one that we'll be talking about in the book of Nehemiah, in the second chapter there. Why, this is the Artaxerxes who gave permission to this man, Nehemiah, to return and build the walls of Jerusalem. And that actually marks the beginning of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the great prophecy. And that is the thing that lends significance actually, to this man, Artaxerxes. But I don't want to talk about him now, because we'll talk about him when we get to Nehemiah. The man that interests me here is not the king at all, but Ezra himself, because now is our first opportunity to meet him, to get acquainted with him, and to find out about this man. As we said at the very beginning, he is one of the neglected characters of the Bible. I do not believe He has received proper recognition by Bible expositors and certainly not from the church today. Very little is ever said about Ezra. And I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on the book of Ezra. Have you ever heard the book of Ezra taught? Well, this is one that is very easily passed by. But I want us now to look at him. To begin with, who was he? He was the son of Sariah. Well, who was Sariah? He was the son of Azariah. Well, who's Azariah? He was the son of Hilkiah. Well, who's Hilkiah? He was the son of Shalem, who was the son of Zadok, and the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, and on down. And we come to verse 5, and we're told he's the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. Now, we know who he is. He is an offspring, actually, of Aaron, the great high priest. He belongs, therefore, to the priestly line. Now, had there been a temple in Jerusalem, he would obviously have functioned in it, probably have been a high priest. But you see, there was no temple. It's been burned. No city destroyed. And now this man did not feel like returning with the first delegation. Well, there was no place for him there. And apparently he was ministering to those that had not returned. Now a group, and it's not a large group, about 2,000, are going to return with Ezra back to the land. Now that the temple is finished, then there's a place now for him to minister. And we're going to find out he was a teacher, a teacher of the Word of God. And the interesting thing is, we're told here he's a grandson, that is, Phinehas is the one I call attention to here. And Phinehas was the grandson of Aaron, and it was in this line of Eleazar and Phinehas that Ezra came. If you went back to the 25th chapter of the book of Numbers, Many of you will recall this, that Balaam couldn't curse Israel, but he taught Balak to get his people intermarried with them. And that brought the world and the flesh and the devil into Israel. And there was a man that went out and had married a Midianite woman. And the thing was that this man apparently had seen his great sin that he had done And there was a judgment that came upon him. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, he took a javelin in his hand, and he went out and did something that seems very harsh to us. He executed this man and this woman. And the plague that had broken out among the people was stayed. And actually, two lives are sacrificed in order to save a multitude of lives. I'd like to just add this word, a very practical word, that I think is a very logical 
application of the Word of God to our present condition. Now, there are a great many judges today that feel like that if you let a criminal off, and certainly that we shouldn't have capital punishment today, that means that we are very brutal and uncivilized. Now, why should judgment be executed? It hasn't anything actually in the world to do with the individual because his life has ended. The minute that he's executed, why, in Israel, that ended that man's life. The judgment actually was not for him, friends. This idea today that capital punishment and prison doesn't reform a criminal, and therefore we ought not to have it. That never was the purpose of it originally. The original purpose of all of this was for the protection of other human lives. And when one is not executed, then hundreds have to pay with their lives. Today it's not safe in our cities because there has not been executions. Now, don't tell me that doesn't deter crime. I've discovered that when a traffic officer writes a ticket, it'll slow you down on the highway. And don't tell me it doesn't slow you down. And this is a deterrent to crime, you see. And that is the purpose of it. And for that reason, in that day, this couple were executed that multitudes in Israel might be saved from this pollution that had broken out in the nation. And that is the reason, the logical reason for execution, by the way. When anyone is put in a gas chamber, electric chair, this idea that it's for them. I remember hearing the whimsical story about the man was asked to say something years ago in the West before he was hanged for a crime. He'd committed a murder. And they asked him if he wanted to make a statement. He said, yes. He said, I want you to know this is going to be a lesson to me. Well, my friend, that's not the purpose of it. It wasn't to be a lesson to him. It was to protect the women and children and the other men that were living in that day. That's the reason for it. Why don't we face up to the facts today in life? That somehow or another we are going to sacrifice hundreds of lives to protect one criminal. God doesn't do it that way because he wants to save human life. And he knows how bad the human heart can be. And I tell you, when a human heart is wicked, and who can know the heart? Why, the heart is desperately wicked. That's what God says about us. Now, this was a great lesson that Phinehas, one of the ancestors of Ezra, had performed. Now, I spent some time with that because I think that's important today. In this little book, Great Spiritual Lesson. Now, will you notice verse 6? This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe, in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now it says he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. Well, may I say that this man was not able to execute the office of priest, so he spent his time studying the Word of God. And now... He's going to be able to use that, by the way. And you'll find here, this man is labeled that again and again. Verse 11, we're told. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes of Israel. And then if you drop down to verse 21... You find, and I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasures which are beyond the river, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. And you see, he had a reputation down in Babylon, and especially even with the king, he was a scribe of the words of the Lord God. He had that reputation. He was a teacher of the Word of God. Now we are told that there was another great wave of revival among the people, and about 2,000 now want to go back. There went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests 
and the Levites and the singers, the poeters, the Nathanims under Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Now, it took him almost four months, in fact, almost five months, to make this trip. You can see he didn't go by 747 jet stream at all, or the jet liner. He went by foot. It took that long to make the trip. It was a long, arduous trip in that day. Now, we are told in verse 10 again, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, this man had prepared his heart for the day they would return. He knew it was coming. He had faith in God to know it was coming. And he prepared his heart and he studied the law of the Lord. That is, he studied the law of Moses. The book of Joshua was in existence in that day. It's the belief of many that he wrote First and Second Chronicles. Well, this man gave his heart and life to the study of it. But not only to study it, but to do it. Oh, my, that's so important. One thing to study it, another thing to do it. And then he wanted to teach it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He wanted to do that. Now, this decree is made by Artaxerxes that Ezra can go up. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law, of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time. Now he goes on and says, I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are reminded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. Again, the commandment was not a commandment, a must. They must return if they wanted to, according to their own particular desire and leading of the Lord. Now we are told, verse 14, For as much as thou art son of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of thy God, which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem." Now, apparently, Ezra had a real witness with the king, Artaxerxes. And he'll figure very largely, by the way, in the book of Nehemiah. I think that Ezra and Nehemiah must have been acquainted with each other. Now, we find here that they get together all of this material, and then Ezra sends out the decree, and then the preparation is made for them to leave. And we're told in verse 26, "...whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment." Now, that was the law in reference to them after they arrived in the land. In other words, if they're going up, they must mean business as far as their relationship to God is concerned. Now, verse 27 This is the thanksgiving of Ezra. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Now, not only was it rebuilt, but now it's to be beautified. And God's house, I think, ought to be made beautiful, as beautiful as it possibly can be, according to the ability of the folk who are identified with it. Verse 28, And he hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel 
chief men to go up with me. Now, actually, a very fine delegation, not as large as the other, but apparently a great many of the leaders returned back to the land. Now we have the list of these companions that went up. Many of them are the Levites. The Nethanims, the servants, were there also. And here in chapter 8 now, verse 22, something that's quite interesting reveals how human this man Ezra was. In verse 22, he calls for a great prayer meeting, by the way, and a fast. He says, verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Now, he goes to God in prayer, calls this great prayer meeting in a fast. Now, why did he do it? He says this, For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we'd spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Ezra said, I went before the king, and I told him, I says, The hand of our God's with us, and he'll be against our enemies, and he'll lead us up. And Ezra waxed eloquent. And then after the king granted all this permission to go up, and he gets out there with this delegation at this river, Ahava, and he's ready to go on that long march, he looks at the families, the little ones, and he knows the dangers along the way. Now, the normal thing would be to go to ask the king, well, couldn't you give us a little help? Send a few guards with us. And then the king would say to me, I thought that you were trusting the Lord. You know, sometimes some of us become very eloquent about how we're trusting God and how wonderful he is. Then when we get right down to the nitty-gritty, we don't really trust him. And so Ezra is that kind of an individual. He's sure human. He says, but I was ashamed to go ask the king. So what other alternative? He said, I called a prayer meeting and a fast. And I said, oh, Lord, we just have to depend on you. And you know, the Lord puts many of us in that position many, many times. Well, we find here that the king did send up a great deal of gold and silver and very many vessels and a great deal of wealth went up and they were put in the hands of 12 priests and they needed protection, you see. But God did watch over him. We read in verse 31, Then we departed from the river of Ahab on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem and the hand of our God was upon us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and we abode there three days. Now, after they abode there three days, why, he has the treasure brought out and it's brought into the temple, into the house of God. And we are told here in verse 35, also the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel, twelve bullocks for all Israel, ninety and six rams, seventy and seven lambs, twelve he goats again. Why? It's for all Israel, for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. And my, what a glorious, wonderful thing this was. Now, friends, we actually come here in chapter 9 of Ezra to one of the great prayers in the Bible. In fact, these post-captivity books, and three of them go together, there are three great nine chapters. Here is Ezra 9, and we'll see it in Nehemiah 9, which we take up next. And then later on, when we come to the book of Daniel, which belongs to this group of books. Daniel 9, another great prayer. And so we have in this book here, or in this chapter, one of the great prayers of the Bible, the prayer of Ezra. And there was a basis for it. A very sad thing had taken place among these people. And we come now in our outline of the return from Babylon led by Ezra. We have here in chapters 9 and 10, 
the Reformation under Ezra. First, there was the return and actually revival. And I think we have here a real revival. But now let's see what the problem was among the people here. I'm reading now verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Amorites, and the electric lights. That is not there, however, the electric lights. They came in with Edison. But the Egyptians are here. And so that these were the pagan peoples all around them, a great people, the Hittites. They found out about them after I was in school, and I've always been interested in reading about them through Asia Minor especially along the coast, those great cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Troy were all cities established first by the Hittites. Great people they were, but they were a pagan, heathen people. Now what had happened, these people had returned back to the land. And as we have seen, they came back and the first thing they met was discouragement. We're going to pick this up in the prophecy of Haggai, how he led them to overcome all the hurdles of discouragement that were before them. And believe me, they ran a whole long line of hurdles. And through Haggai, they were enabled to clear them. And through Nehemiah, the active layman, and as a result, why the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, And the temple was rebuilt. All of that took place. But they met discouragement, and in their discouragement, why, that's the time that you let down. That happens to many Christians today. Someone has said, you know, that discouragement is the devil's greatest weapon. I don't know that that's true, but I'm of the opinion that it is. And so what had happened, these people letting down why these people on the fringe of the nation, all the walls of separation were broken down. And as a result, why we find that in a marriage took place. And I think sometime that they didn't even take the trouble of getting married because these heathen and pagan didn't pay too much attention to that any more than the heathen and pagan in our contemporary society today pay no attention to it. And yet, we are told today that this is an advance. This is a new freedom. We are a civilized people. My friends, these pagan peoples in the past, that's what they did. Now, will you notice, verse 2, "...for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands." Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And the leadership among the people of Israel, they were the ones that were guilty. And, of course, before God, they were more guilty because privilege always increases responsibility. Now, this was the condition that they were in. Now, of course, I'm sure that Ezra could have gone on the radio and have run a program on patriotism and run up the Israeli flag of David and had great rallies on patriotism. But that's not what he did. He could have done that. Or he might have delivered a withering blow against it by making speeches against it, speaking out against it, and doing nothing else. Or he might have done something else. He might have formed an organization and have got involved in trying to recover these couples that had gone into this. That, my friend, is the way we do it today, but they didn't do it that way in that day. Of course, 
this poor fellow in that day, Ezra, he just didn't know about our modern ways of doing this. And so I want you to notice what he did. And it's something that certainly we don't see much of in our day. Will you notice it? Verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Now, you see, Ezra had just recently returned. Actually, he did not get back until... 75 years after the first delegation came. They had been in captivity 70 years, and during this interval, after Zerubbabel came back with 50,000 or thereabouts, why, Ezra returned with about 2,000 75 years later. Now, he found the temple rebuilt, but not the walls of the city. And the population was in a sad sordid and squalid condition. They had intermingled with the heathen. Immorality and idolatry was running rampant. They had intermarried. There was a lack of separation. And they were a miserable and bedraggled lot. And this man Ezra, when this is called to his attention, and he discovers that it is accurate, he's absolutely overwhelmed and chagrined that God's people would have dropped down to this low level. I wonder how many today talk about the apostasy of the church. At least I do. But I wonder if we're as exercised about this today as we should be. I find now that I have retired. I'm on the outside, as it were. And I look at the condition of the church today. And I must confess that I would like to wash my hands of the affair and say, well, look, this is no affair of mine, but it is an affair of mine. And friends, it's so easy for you and me to point our finger to somebody else. But notice what this man did, and this is important for us to see. First of all, this man is overwhelmed by it, and he goes into sackcloth and ashes. He doesn't begin a tirade against them or this sort of thing. That would have been a characteristic of many, I'm sure, today. But he didn't do that. And we need to note that he didn't do that at all. Now, will you notice the next step that he took was this. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. And I love that. We've had that before, of those that trembled at the Word of God. It's a wonderful thing. Trembled at the Word of the God of Israel. Now, let me pause there for just a moment. How many really today take the Word of God seriously? I think I know the fundamental church fairly well. And there's so many wonderful fundamentalists today. And they are the choicest people. They're my crowd. I love them. But there are many today that profess to have a love for the Word of God. And they've got notebooks to prove it. And their Bible is marked up. But the interesting thing, their own lives are marked up and also fouled up. And they're doing nothing about it. The Word of God, they say, yes, we believe it but it's having no effect upon their lives whatsoever. They don't tremble at it. It's so easy today for us to go off on this kick that the world's gone on, even the outside. God is love. It's just wonderful, you know. God is love. Yes, He is love. Thank God for that. But He's more than that. Our God is a holy God. He will punish sin. And that's the thing that troubled this man here. Now, notice what he does here. He trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away and listened to him. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This man is absolutely overwhelmed by this. Does this concern us? Really today, how much are we involved? How much really do we believe the Word of God? And my Christian friend, It would pay you and me both to go off to the side and ask ourselves the question, with nobody witnessing to it except God, 
how much do we really believe it? How much do we obey it? The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, if we don't love him, I think he'd say, forget it. It's meaningless to you. This thing has to mean something to you. Now, verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice, he says, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment, my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. You know, lifting holy hands to God. What does it mean to spread out your hand? It means you're not concealing anything. It means when you go to God in prayer, friends, that your mind and your soul stands naked before him. You talk about whether you're going to have a body or not. My friend, you don't have when you go to God in prayer. Holy hands, the hands were outspread. He's holding back nothing from God at all. And we need to remember that in our prayer life. Now listen to him. He says, And I said, Oh my God, I'm ashamed, and I blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. Now listen to him. He doesn't say, For their iniquities are increased over their head, and their trespasses is grown up under the heavens. Listen to him. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up to the heavens. Now, today it's easy to divorce yourself from the church. Church is in a bad state. I grant that. But, my friend, it's not their sin, it's our sin. And we need to identify ourselves with that. Is the church today in apostasy? Then we are in apostasy, my friend. It's not my sister, nor my brother, but it's me, O Lord, that stands in the need of prayer. Now listen to this man, Ezra. This is a great prayer. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Now this man knew what it was to be a captive in a foreign land. Ezra apparently had either been born out there or been taken as a little boy. And he knew what it was. And he trembled when he recognized that God would judge us. My friend, there are many today being judged of God. I could give instance after instance. A man came to me eating up a venereal disease several years ago. He said, I thought I got by with it. I was a Christian. And I thought I got by with it. And he said, now I'm going to have to die of this dirty, filthy disease. And he did. And somebody says, oh, God should have extended mercy to him. Yes, God would have extended mercy to him. But the interesting thing is why this man was guilty. And our God is a holy God. And he judges. Too bad that more of us don't tremble at the word of God. Now, listen to verse 8. It's one of the great verses of the Bible. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes, give us a little reviving in our bondage. Now, this is a great verse. He says, We've had just a little grace given to us, just a little space of the grace of God. And the 70 years' captivity is over. He's permitted them to return, and the minute they return, here they go off again following the heathen, the very thing that sent them into captivity. Now, he says, it's just a remnant of us. These people obeyed enough to come back into the land. Most of them had not come back, but these people had come back. And they're just a remnant, always been just a remnant of those people. And there's just a remnant today, very candidly. And then he speaks here to give us a nail in his holy place. And you know what that nail is? That nail is Christ, by the way. My anchor holds within the veil. You know why? Because I got a nail. I'm nailed there. He's nailed on the cross down here that I might be nailed yonder at the throne of God for eternity. Listen to this. 
Over in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, verse 22, "...and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder." We're talking about Christ now. "...so he shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place." and he shall be for a glorious throne to his Father's house. And so we're nailed up there, not on a cross, but nailed in heaven for eternity. You see, a nail fixed in a sure place. What a wonderful thing this is. They didn't lose their salvation, but they sure did lose a great deal else. The blessing of God and a reward. And how many today are saved, but they'll get no reward at all a nail in a sure place, that our God may lighten our eyes, give us a little reviving in our bondage. Now, a little revival in our bondage. And I think what you have here is the true picture of revival. The term revival is not actually a Bible word. It's just simply not used, except in a place like this. And the principle is there, but not in the popular meaning of the term. I've always used the word revival from the pulpit in a popular sense. That is a spiritual upsurge, sinners converted in mass, new interest in the things of the Spirit. But the technical term, it means to recover life or vigor, return to consciousness, and it refers to that which has life, and it ebbs down even almost to death, and there's no vitality, and then it's revived. And, in fact, the resurrection of Christ in Romans 14, 9 is called, He was revived. Now, obviously, it must be confined to believers if we're going to be technical. It means that the believers were in a low spiritual condition and they're brought back to vitality and power. And so, here you have real revival that's going to take place. Now, we find here, he goes on in his prayer, says, We were bondmen. Yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. And how wonderful God was to them, you see. They confess their sin, and God is going to bless them. We were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. He's extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land into which we go to possess it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another, with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great trespass, seeing that thou our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such a deliverance as this. In other words, Ezra says, we didn't get all that was coming to us. Now he said, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us so there should be no remnant nor escaping now listen to him. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. This is something that only thy mercy, only a confession of sin, only the sacrifice of Christ could make it possible for God to save them and God to restore them, and God to revive them. Now, God's going to do all of these because of the prayer of this man and the remnant that were there that cried out to God for mercy. And when we take that position, God is ready to hear. You see, the Word of God has been back of all great spiritual movements. 
has to be. There can be no spiritual movement without the Word of God. And when Ezra had arrived in that land, word was brought to him of the low spiritual ebb of the people. And as a result, he went before God in prayer. For some time, the man was in shock. He couldn't even actually move. He was so humiliated. And then those that felt as he did joined with him in a great prayer meeting. And then there began this movement of revival. And revival always leads to reformation. The problem in our day has been that we talk about we have a great revival in our church. And actually, when you examine it, it wasn't revival at all because a few people got saved, and that was great. But the point is that there was no reviving of the church. The church today as a whole is in a very low spiritual ebb. And for that reason, there should be a great deal of prayer today on the part of God's people. Not just saying prayer, but laying hold of God in prayer. Now, there were some results of this revival, and that leads to reformation. And you don't need a fingerprint expert to find out what the results were. We find here now in chapter 10 at verse 1, and I'm reading. We read here, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept sore. Now, there is a great conviction of sin that comes over God's people at this particular time. And it certainly was something that was needed. Now, will you notice what happened? And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, this man, Shechaniah, he became the mouthpiece here of, I think, a group of people that recognized their sin and wanted to confess. And they come to Ezra, and they make this confession. They say, we've trespassed against our God. Now, that's his very candid acknowledgment. And he says, we've taken strange wives of the people of the land, and that, my friend, is nailing it down, dealing with specifics. And all of this was absolutely contrary to the law of Moses. It was breaking the law. And they had not consulted in this grave matter that which was written. In other words, they had departed from the Word of God. And this man now, though, casts himself upon the mercy of God. He says, yet now... There is hope in Israel concerning this thing. And the thing that follows here, will you notice? He says, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now, there were those that joined now in confession, and they likewise trembled at the commandment of God. That is, they just didn't read it or just study it. The Word of God had its way in their hearts. When that was called to their attention, a transgression, they confessed it. They didn't attempt to rationalize or excuse it or cover it over. And they just came out and confessed it. And they did this according to the word of God. Now he goes on, verse 4, Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word. And they swear. And Ezra rose up from before the house of God 
and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. Now, this was a very serious thing in breaking the law of God. And they go before him with great travail of soul. Ezra now goes into the very presence of God. And this is something that's very drastic. It's rather heart-rending, this thing they went through. But the Word of God has been transgressed. And the repentance came to God's people here. Now, friends, that's where revival must begin First, walking in the light of the Word of God. And when we come to the Word of God and it brings conviction to our hearts, we see we are coming short of the glory of God, or we are openly transgressing that which God has written. Then we go to Him in confession. Then there is real repentance. And as a result, why the children of God are revived. We today have been so busy preaching repentance to the lost world outside. Very candidly, I'm not sure that God's asking or saying to the lost world there to repent. To the lost world, it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And when you come to Christ as Savior, something else happens. It happened in Thessalonica. Paul says, "...how ye turn to God from idols." Now, the coming to God took priority over turning from idols. Repentance does not precede faith. Faith goes before, and repentance follows. Follows as the night follows the day. It just has to follow. It doesn't follow then there wasn't anything pulling it up in front. There was no real saving faith at all. And therefore, the thing that's important today is this thing that's so lacking in the church is repentance. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, God asks the church to repent? In the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, he said to every one of them, repent, lest you repent. Now, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unsaved people, apparently. He's talking to those that are saved. And today, we're telling the lost world. Now, probably those of you that listen to me recognize I have a few hang-ups. Well, I want to tell you about another one I got. I detour every now and then, get off on these, but I feel they're important. Now, I personally do not agree with these people who are constantly saying to the mayor or to the governor or to the president, let's have a national day of prayer. We need prayer. Oh, my friend, what are you talking about? I can't believe that Ezra sent out word to that crowd that were round about them of the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Amorites, and the Egyptians. He didn't send out a petition to all of them. Let's have a great day of prayer. You don't ask the heathen to pray and repent. My friend, America today is a pagan nation. Let's face it. Believers are a minority. This is a day when every minority is being heard except the Bible believers and they're not being heard today. That's an interesting thing about our minority. And it's the reason that I think I could get up a rally of thousands of people in Southern California to call a great national day of prayer. I don't think it'd be any problem. Well, what good would it do? God is saying to his church, repent. He's saying to his church, you come back to me. Come back out of your coldness and your indifference. The thing is that what we need today is a revival, and a revival will not come without repentance, and until there is repentance in the church, and that's among believers. The very interesting thing is that these people here are no longer indifferent, you see. We've got indifference in the church today. 
Lyman Abbott made this statement years ago. He says, when a boy, I heard my father say that if by some miracle God would change every cold, indifferent Christian into ten blatant infidels, the church might well celebrate a day of thanksgiving and praise. Trouble with the church today, it's filled with cold, indifferent church members. I don't even know whether they're saved or not. And if revival had come, friends, I tell you, you're going to see this crowd that indifferent, they're either going to come over on the Lord's side, or else they're going to make it very clear they belong to the devil. This is tremendous, this section here, you see. Now, we find out this man, Ezra, he went to God in genuine repentance. Now, verse 7, "...and they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity, that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem, and that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be forfeited, and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. Now, they're making a real line of separation. Now, they're under law. I don't think that in the church today you could force this at all. But you see what they're doing. They're getting out all of the chaff that they possibly can from the good wheat here. And it would take about three days to come from any section in that land. And this is directed to these that have come out of Babylonian captivity because they've come to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple, they are to come together. And they're to come together for a great time of spiritual refreshing, but repentance must precede it. And they're to come together, and if there are those that won't come, that hold something in their heart, they say they're not doing it my way, or they have some other objection, then they're to be put outside. Now, the church needs house cleaning today. And I don't mean taking out the dead wood of the members that can't locate. What the average church needs to get rid of are some of the members they can locate. They're the ones that they need to deal with. And if today real revival had come into the church, all this bitterness that you find even in our fundamental churches. Now, don't tell me they're not there. I was quite interested in several letters I received of what I said some time ago about the condition of fundamentalism. There are a great many people thought I should have kept quiet about it. They said, you shouldn't have brought that out in the open. I believe when you got cancer, telling people about it, friends, and when it's a spiritual cancer, knowing that the very life of the church, I think somebody ought to call attention to it and bring the old skeleton out of the closet. Let's get rid of it. That's the important thing. And I make no apology for doing that at all. Then there several folk thought that their church was all right. The interesting thing, I happen to know a couple of the churches that were mentioned to me, and I know the pastor. The pastor has a different viewpoint than you have. I can assure you that. You see, bitterness today is like quinine in a barrel of water doesn't take much of it. And I remember that when I was a boy, my mother would always tell me when I'd cut up a chicken, you don't break the gallbladder. You'll ruin the whole chicken if you do. You could have spoiled the entire fowl. And God wants to get rid of that. He says, for instance, Hebrews 12:15, "...looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God." lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And the Lord said, A little leaven leaveneth a whole lump. Just a few complainers and critics in the church can absolutely stifle any spiritual movement in the church. How many lives have been wrecked by bitterness? And we don't have time to develop that today. Now, we're told, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days, was the ninth month. And verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, You've transgressed, 
taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers, do his pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land from the strange wives. And all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. In other words, not being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word also. Repentance that leads to action. And we're hearing a great deal today about action groups in the church. What they mean are witnessing. What the church needs to do is to get cleaned up. This confession needs to be done. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now you find here that this is going to be a bitter pill, but they did all the things that had been asked of them. And these people come together in confession. And when they do, there was, I'm confident, the great wrenching of the heart. And there was great agony of soul as these people did this thing. And I think something here that's quite interesting, that when they gathered together... Why, there was quite a rainstorm that apparently came up, and they appointed a certain time. But the people are many, verse 13, and it's a time of much rain, and we're not able to stand without, neither is this work of one day. Now, they're not going to do it in a slipshod manner. Rainstorm came up. Everybody wanted to scatter. And this man, Ezra's got a whole lot of sand. And he says, well, we don't want to stand out here in all this rain and with women and children. And what we want to do is to come back another day and to do this thing right. And now our rulers of all the congregations stand and let them which have taken strange wives, let this thing be handled in an orderly way. This is a great thing, by the way. And this is the thing they did. And they all, we're told here, verse 19, they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Now, will you notice verse 44, the last verse? All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And that tells you a pretty sad story, does it not? The sins that have to be visited on the children. And then another thing that this offering is an offering that speaks of the fact that the people are united together now as one. I can't call it fellowship. I think fellowship is something that the Spirit of God brought to believers on the day of Pentecost. You don't see too much of it today, but there are many places where there's wonderful fellowship. I go into many churches, and there are certain churches I go in, I just look forward to it. There are wonderful folk there. You have wonderful fellowship in the things of God. And there are some few churches not quite like that, but there are so many wonderful churches, wonderful people today you can have fellowship. Now, only the Spirit of God can make that. Here, you have a time of the people coming together, united in this tremendous effort that is made. That brings us to the end of the book of Ezra. Next time, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Oh, this is a great book we're coming to now. And there's a lot of fun in the book of Nehemiah. I hope you find fun in the Bible. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.